from speaking with a number of midwives who back my work, their observations in practice are that their vegetarian and vegan clients have a much tougher time recovering postpartum, particularly in regaining strength and function of their pelvic floor or healing from perineal tears if they had them, is because you need those amino acids that are found in the connective tissues of animal foods. You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kybert, chiropractor and movement expert, as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential. Lily Nichols, I'm so excited to have you on Muscle Medicine Podcast. You are the only repeat guest so far. Hey. (laughs) And the first time we're talking about prenatal nutrition and choline, and I love to deep dive now that you have a second child, I have a second child, probably born like two weeks apart. Probably. (laughs) About the postpartum period, because... I think the cultural expectation is that women should get back to their usual, you know, life as quickly as possible. And it is so far from the truth, not only with one, but with two, it is like on a whole new level. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) I know in certain cultures, there is this nesting period. Like for example, like in Chinese culture, 40 days of bed. When I first think about that, I think, That's crazy. But after having my second, I'm like, it's kind of nice to to kind of have help, whether it's family, husband, postpartum doula, some people get a night nurse. What has your experience been now that you have a second in terms of like taking the time for yourself? Yeah, well, I will say that I personally did not know nearly as much about postpartum recovery or even honor it enough with my first. And there's a reason that in Real Food for Pregnancy, there's a whole chapter, a really long chapter on postpartum recovery, because I started writing that book when I was 10 months postpartum with my first. So I was still sort of in the midst of it. Now this round, having gone through a previous postpartum, I joked that like, all of the energy that I put in with my first pregnancy to planning the birth, I put towards planning for postpartum. There was like no birth planning this time. Oh, <laughs> it was yeah. just like, okay, you know, line up the right help and whatever. But there was no mindfulness meditation. There was no hypno birthing recordings. Like it was like, no, I know how birth is, you know, I know how to do this. It's going to happen when it happens. And birth is like maybe a day. And postpartum is forever, right? So this pregnancy was very much focused on postpartum recovery. So I did pull from what I've come to learn from a lot of these other cultures, which is this typical like 40 days, six weeks or so of really intense focus on rest, accepting help from other people. Super hard super hard. Even like, you know, my first postpartum, I was eating a ton of nourishing foods 
as well. But this time I did a lot more pre-prep of those nourishing foods Mm -hmm. so that it would be easier to eat that way because you don't realize or I didn't realize the first time like, wow, you don't really want to be standing in the kitchen or you don't have two hands free unless you're baby wearing, right? It's harder to cook and it's especially harder to cook in those first six weeks. At the time of recording, I'm like two and a half months into my second postpartum recovery. And now I can cook just fine. I'm like, well, maybe I over-prepared these postpartum recovery meals, but you know, they'll still come in handy on on busy days. I, I am still pulling from my freezer stash. And I also planned a lot more help. Like the first round, I was like, well, I don't know, maybe I don't want to have people in my space when I want this bonding time with my family. And this round, I'm like, I need somebody to occupy the toddler and bring me breakfast and all the things. So I planned to have my mom up here and she stayed. She was here before the birth a little bit because I thought I would go. I thought I would go early. I gave birth at 39 weeks last time. So I was like, I'm having another 39 weeker. Now she showed up on her due date on the dot. So my mom oh. was here a little ahead of time. And that was actually helpful to get some rest going into birth. And then she stayed after for several weeks. And then my in-laws came up and they stayed for a couple weeks as well, which was really mostly they were helping with cooking food. They'd make dinner every night and helping with my toddler, getting him to and from preschool and just occupying him so I could just be focused on baby stuff. And now that the help has you know dissipated and it's just us as a nuclear family, it is much more doable at, at this stage. But those that early, like, again, that first six weeks, it is really helpful to have help. And so I was much more willing to ask for it and allow it this round, which I think was, it just made for a much more restful recovery, despite like the craziness of a very active, like three and a half year old kid running around. (laughs) Yeah. My experience was the same. It was like the first birth is like, okay, what's all these techniques I'm going to do for birth. This time I was like, head down. Okay. We're good to go. (laughs) Yep. And I actually, in-laws came, my mother came but like after four weeks, it was just the nuclear family. And I actually mm-hmm. overdid it. I, gave, I actually got mastitis for like oh, a wow. week and had like 104 fever. Oh, and no. it was that self-regulation of like, hey, you're overdoing it. And it, yeah. I had like seven different postpartum doulas on speed dial to come and take care of me. <laughs> wow. And the baby. And then my husband would hang out with my toddler. So yeah. the rest, super essential. Yeah. I love that you did all this pre-prep for nourishing foods postpartum. And I think a lot of women, probably most women don't know what that means. Um, Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So when it comes to what's going to replenish your nutrient stores postpartum, because a lot has been pulled from you during pregnancy, you're actually thinking about a lot of the same foods that you emphasized in pregnancy. So a lot of the nutrients that get depleted in pregnancy continue to be important postpartum for your recovery, but also for supplying your breast milk with adequate amounts of nutrients and all of that. So we're talking, you know, iron, vitamin B12, choline, omega-3s, zinc. There's a whole bunch of nutrients that remain pretty crucial to your recovery. So for me, that's, that's putting an emphasis on animal protein. That's really where you're getting most of those nutrients. Also your seafood, some of the most nutrient dense of these foods would be like the organ meats. So 
liver. I do like hidden liver and meatloaf, hidden liver and meatballs, hidden liver and chili, looking at incorporating maybe some oysters or clams into your diet. Those are super rich in iron, zinc, and B12, right on par with the organ meats. Definitely encouraging, you know, an emphasis on animal fats. You need to replenish your vitamin A stores. Those are typically pretty depleted after pregnancy and babies' vitamin A stores need to be built up. And uh, when you start looking at the data on vitamin A levels in breast milk, they actually tend to be low in about 60% of mothers, even like well-nourished mothers. We're not just looking at people in, you know, developing countries with food scarcity. So this is a time really to focus on on that vitamin A. So the liver is going to be your primary source of that, really. Also continuing with your prenatal, which hopefully contains it in a form other than beta carotene, because the beta carotene does not enhance the vitamin A levels in breast milk very much, but also your animal fats in general. And what I found interesting this round compared to the first round was that I felt like ravenously hungry my first postpartum. And this postpartum, I was definitely hungry. Maybe I was just expecting it. So I wasn't caught off guard when I was like, I want to eat all the food. But because I had done so much of this pre-prep and also expected I am going to want to be eating these really like protein-rich fatty foods, I simply ate those foods, but then was like really satisfied. Like I wasn't as snacky as before. And maybe it was because I had just planned that I was going to eat more, or maybe I was less depleted this round. I don't know. I had a shorter, easier Mm. birth this round. So maybe that's part of it, but there was just, you know, heavy emphasis on, on animal foods. Really. It's not that that's exclusively what I eat. I eat everything else as well, but it was like, okay, my breakfast is going to have like a couple eggs in it and maybe some bacon or sausage or something and some kale or vegetables of some kind. And my lunch is going to have, you know, probably some kind of a bone broth based soup. You need a lot of the amino acids that are in gelatin and collagen, which you get from broth or soups and stews made from the bone skin and connective tissues of animals. So I had quite a bit of those types of foods built in. So a lot of soups and stews, which I found really just so like deeply nourishing and satisfying on like a, you know, flavor comfort level. But I also felt like my connective tissue healed better this time. My pelvic floor recovery was like easier this time. I don't know. Everything felt easier this time. And I I can't say that it was like a hundred percent from the food, but certainly the food didn't hurt. And then allowing help so that I could rest and actually recover also like didn't hurt, you know, it was on many levels that I think it was, it was easier this round. So it sounds like a lot of warm foods. Like I don't hear any warming foods, smoothies or. Yeah. I I mean, I had a couple smoothies in there too. I think some of it depends on where you live and what the climate is like, but certainly in most of these non-Western cultures, the postpartum recovery foods tend to be warming foods on some level. And that could be like temperature warm. And that's usually the case, you know, broths and warmed milk that you might have in like Ayurvedic culture or atole that you might have if you're in Mexico, which is like a warmed corn based, masa based drink. There is an emphasis on warm foods from that level, but also warming spices. So incorporating like cinnamon and ginger both from like an Ayurvedic and Chinese medicine perspective are like warming on more of, I guess, an energetic level, you could say. 
And in a lot of these cultures, there was a discouragement from eating cooling foods like raw vegetables, raw fruits, raw salads and things. I did have some of those as well. I mean, I gave birth in the, in the late summer, so yeah. it was still warm and I wanted those things. So I'm yeah. not going to like not eat them, but I definitely had more of an emphasis on things that were cooked, easy to digest. They're just kind of like easier on your system as a whole. And if you think about what happened to your internal organs, you know, as the uterus grows and everything kind of like has to be moved out of the way, like all of your digestive organs need to find their place again. And so I think that's also why there tends to be an emphasis on these, you know, comforting, easy to digest, cooked broth based sort of meals. Yeah. I was just watching um, an interview with Donald Lehman. He's a big researcher in protein. And he was mentioning that the protein requirements postpartum are so much more. Can you speak to that or why that may be? Well, I would be interested to listen to this because when you look at the conventional guidelines, they leave the protein requirements the same as pregnancy, which are already set too low. Too low. So like, I think we probably talked about in the previous interview, I, I like to quote this 2015 study, which was the first ever study to directly estimate protein requirements in pregnancy. And they found that late pregnancy protein requirements are actually underestimated by 73%. Okay. So my assumption, and it's like outrageous. So my assumption is that this also continues postpartum. I personally found that my appetite for protein is much higher postpartum, even than it is third trimester of pregnancy. Sometimes late pregnancy, you actually get like less hungry. There's like less room for food and it can (laughs) be kind of uncomfortable to eat enough. Right. So postpartum, it's like, replenish the stores. (laughs) So I I personally have a huge appetite for protein postpartum and did not try to limit that whatsoever. And maybe that was part of what helped me from feeling so ravenously hungry, because if you're under eating on protein, I mean, even outside of this whole reproductive anything, like both male, female, non-pregnant, protein is like the most important macronutrient and it is the most satiating and, and filling. So if you aren't getting enough protein, regardless of what stage in life you're in, you're going to be ravenously hungry and have crazy cravings and probably be, you know, veering towards eating a bunch of high carb sugary kind of foods because your body is just wants like energy, you know? And so maybe that was what helped this time with me feeling like less ravenous because protein was something I really prioritized. Yeah. If someone's vegetarian or vegan, do you have recommendations in terms of nourishing yourself postpartum? Yeah. So it's kind of a, it's a tricky subject because if you've read Real Food for Pregnancy, there's a section in chapter three called the challenges of a vegetarian diet in pregnancy. And the actual meeting your protein needs, like from a gram perspective of protein isn't really, in my opinion, is not a concern on a vegetarian diet. You can do it and you can match your complementary proteins to get complete amino acids and, and all that. But it's more about the micronutrients and some specific amino acids that can become challenging for a vegetarian diet or a mostly vegetarian diet. And some of the major ones are would be the, the amino acids that are in collagen. So your, your proline, your glycine, your hydroxyproline, 
Some of those things are only found in animal foods. Glycine, for example, is most concentrated in animal foods, and it's most concentrated in collagen and gelatin sources of those animal foods. And that is something that's really important for postpartum healing, maybe even above and beyond what we need in pregnancy. It is something that is understudied, but I will tell you from speaking with a number of midwives who back my work is that their observations in practice are that their vegetarian and vegan clients have a much tougher time recovering postpartum, particularly in regaining strength and function of their pelvic floor or healing from perineal tears if they had them, is because you need those amino acids that are found in the connective tissues of animal foods. This is the number one thing that you find in commonalities across these postpartum traditions in terms of which foods they emphasized was the high collagen foods. So like in China, you have like your pig trotter soup. In Korea, you have a seaweed soup that's made with a really rich beef bone broth. In South America and in Mexico, some of the first foods are a really rich chicken soup. And a lot of times those chicken soups, if you're in a place where you're not buying food directly from a grocery store, you're using all of the parts of the chicken, including the feet, which are super rich in collagen. So you see this across cultures. There's such an emphasis on this. Like I said, it's the number one thing that is similar. That part is challenging. I think one of the things that you might want to like bend the rules on with your postpartum, if you're vegetarian, would be to incorporate some of these collagen-rich foods. They do also offer collagen supplements, and some of those are marine-based, so sourced from seafood, which some people find more they're more willing to, to sort of bend the rules on. It depends on the reason for, for choosing to eat that way or not. So I would definitely consider that. Then I would also consider your iron stores. Were you anemic during pregnancy? I mean, that can be not only iron, but also B12 and vitamin A. So you might want to be looking into that. Some people, even if they're vegan, will incorporate oysters because they don't have a central nervous system, so they don't feel pain. I'm not speaking, you know, personally, but there yeah, are a lot yeah. of vegans who who actually identify with that. You can search the internet and find all sorts of articles on it, but you get your B12, your zinc, your iron in really high amounts in that. So that would be important. There's so many, but I, I guess the final thing that I would highlight would be to continue to include a source of DHA in your diet. So that does become depleted from your body in pregnancy. That particularly affects your mental health postpartum. There's a lot of research on postpartum depression and DHA, as well as postpartum depression and vitamin B12 and anemia, right? you would want to include a source of that. And um, since there are no plant sources of B12 or of, uh, excuse me, DHA, other than what you find in algae-based DHA supplements, I would continue to incorporate an algae-based DHA supplement postpartum. And this is all like for your healing, but also for if you're exclusively breastfeeding, you want your, your breast milk to have enough of those nutrients as well. And your DHA intake, your vitamin B12 intake, those things are reflected in your breast milk and that has implications for your baby's supply of nutrients. Yeah. I think we've touched on two things that could potentially contribute to postpartum depression. One of them is the nutrient deficiencies, right? Yeah. And then the other one is not having the help, right? I find that the women who are like having to do it all 
just dive right in. And I think it's really interesting, you know, from a traditional medical model that it's like, here, take this prescription antidepressant versus kind of really getting to what might be an underlying right. cause of the depression. So right. those are great recommendations. You had put out a post and they are super informative on your Instagram. I love them about vitamin D supplementation. And this is prenatally how it correlates to the baby's teeth development. So yeah. So that study was super interesting. If you want me to. Yeah. Can you do like a, a deep dive? And then I'm also yeah. curious about like vitamin D supplementation after. Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you like the quick rundown of it. The study is a 2019 study published in JAMA, so Journal of the American Medical Association, which is like a very respected journal. I think it's worth Legit. mentioning. Yeah. And it was a really well-designed trial, double-blind, randomized controlled trial. So they didn't know who was receiving what, and neither did the women. But they gave them either you know, a standard prenatal that has fairly low amount of vitamin D versus the prenatal plus extra vitamin D. So they added on a 2,400 IU vitamin D supplement, which is kind of like much. a moderate level. It's not yeah. even that high. Yeah. Um, and then they tracked the outcomes through age six is the data they're publishing or they're reporting on. And they found that there was a 50% lower incidence of enamel defects of developmental origin. So your tooth enamel starts developing in utero and then continues in early childhood. And so some of these enamel defects of developmental origin is what they call them are ones that started in utero. And so the group of children who are exposed to the higher vitamin D levels, so it was 2,400 plus 400 in the prenatal. So it was 2,800 IUs during pregnancy. There was a 50% lower incidence of enamel defects in those children. And we don't know why enamel defects of developmental origin exist. They don't know how to prevent them. This is actually the most promising link to a potential preventative measure that, that mothers could take for their children. So, and I personally know several people like close friends who've had children affected by enamel defects and it can be really severe. I mean, you can get to the point where you have decay so bad that you have to pull baby teeth and then you have to like figure out some sort of a, I mean, the solutions are all not that great, but essentially they can be missing teeth until their adult teeth grow in. That can really impact their ability to eat and their experience of early childhood, right? So this is a, I think it's a really important study and I wanted to highlight it because I'm kind of obsessed with the vitamin D research to begin with, have been for a while. I write about it a lot. I have a whole like, continuing education webinar on it on the Women's Health and Nutrition Academy. Um, and I think it's something that we just continue to uncover links to prenatal vitamin D intake and outcomes for kids. And this is just one of them. Totally. The I've had a couple friends who've also had kids with enamel defects and affects speech development, yeah, what they're eating. The correlation amongst those people that I knew were they all had premature babies. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. Both of mine had full, both the ones that I know had oh, full-term babies. Interesting. Full-term, super healthy babies, super healthy pregnancies, very health-conscious mamas. I don't know about their vitamin D intake, but it's really distressing to the family, you know, as a whole. Yeah. And you just, yeah, it's just 
if we can do anything to prevent them <laughs> and we already know vitamin D is an essential nutrient and most of the research on it for pregnancy says you actually need 4,000 IUs per day, we may as well just be ensuring that mom gets enough. And it hap- if it happens to have a beneficial effect on, on the kiddo's tooth development, awesome. You know, it's yeah. just another like coin in the pot for like totally. the benefits of vitamin D. Yeah. I'm also obsessed with vitamin D just because like living in New York, I'm sure you living in the Pacific Northwest, like you just don't get enough sun. So what do you do once the baby's born? Because I'm obsessed with my kids' vitamin D. I'm not about to draw blood to make sure she has adequate vitamin D levels. Right, right. You know, so so vitamin D is, it continues to be important for, for babies and for moms. And it's kind of a tricky topic because- the assumption among conventional standards is that breast milk is deficient in vitamin D and actually breast milk is deficient in vitamin D in the majority of women. And it's not because it's designed to be that way. It's because most of us are not taking in enough vitamin D ourselves to pass enough through the breast milk. So there actually has been some really high quality data on vitamin D supplementation in breastfeeding mothers and looking at their vitamin D levels and baby's vitamin D levels and breast milk vitamin D levels. And they've actually found that supplementing with a daily dosage of 6,400 IUs. So in in other words, they were doing typical like 400 IUs versus 400 plus 6,000 IUs. That's how they came up with that weird dosage. Everyone was like, why 6,400? It's just, (laughs) that's the way that they can compare it to a control group because they can't ethically deny vitamin D altogether, right? And that was the previous RDA was set at at 400. So anyways, if you give mother 6,400 IUs per day, her milk will contain adequate amounts and her baby will avoid deficiency in vitamin D, regardless of what her blood levels of vitamin D are, by the way, though everybody in the study getting 6,400s had adequate amounts. But you don't transfer like circulating vitamin D into your breast milk. You transfer vitamin D3. And this is a really important point because I see a lot of misquotes of this research in in social media and whatever where people are like, oh, well, I just, you know, front loaded with a bunch of vitamin D in pregnancy. So my vitamin D levels were, were great. So I'm getting enough. And actually it's the continual either exposure to the sun which may or may not be feasible depending on where you live or continual intake via a supplement that's going to, that's going to affect your vitamin D levels in your milk. And so if you opt for this, if you opt to take this 6,400 I use per day or around that amount, you can forego the separate vitamin D supplement for your baby. If you are formula feeding, you can forego it altogether because formula is fortified with vitamin D. So you have like three options. It's like breastfeed without a vitamin D supplement or without much sun exposure. You should also give your baby a vitamin D supplement of 400 IUs. That's the American Academy of Pediatric Stance. Or breastfeed with a maternal supplement of 6,400. Don't bother thinking about a vitamin D supplement for baby. Or 
formula feed, you don't have to worry about vitamin D either because it's already built into the formula. So you got three options, like take your pick. (laughs) So the first option where you're like directly giving the supplement to the baby, how does, is that like in liquid form? I'm assuming they're usually in a liquid form. Yeah. Yeah. So there's quite a few on the market that are, it's 400 IUs per drop. It's usually in like a olive oil or a fractionated coconut oil base, or maybe some other oil. And you could just put it on your finger and put it in baby's mouth, put it directly on the nipple if you want. But really it's kind of comes down to when they've surveyed people in actual studies, 86% of mothers preferred the option of taking a vitamin D supplement themselves. Mm. And from a practical standpoint, I understand why, because for me, it's like one extra thing that I have to think about, like giving baby an extra thing every day. Did I give them the drop yet? Did I not? Like, I don't know. But also vitamin D is important for you. It's important for your mental health, for your bone strength, for your immunity, for so many things that you may as well do. You know, it's a two birds with one stone situation. Like supplement yourself. You're probably going to help maintain your own vitamin D levels and your immune function and your mental health and all this stuff. And also, you know, baby's getting enough. You don't have to think about a separate product. It's just easier. Yeah. So a lot of women will experience a drop in milk production and it might be going back to work, not pumping frequently enough stress. What are, which is like a huge one. (laughs) And sometimes it's hard to tell mom like, Hey, maybe just like dial down the stress. They're like, yeah, okay. (laughs) I know you Uh, kind of can't without maternity leave built into most people's (laughs) reality. Exactly. So what, is there something nutritionally that we can do to boost our milk production? Yeah. So as you mentioned, there are like a million things that can go into maintaining milk supply. So it's a hard question to answer just from a nutritional perspective because some of it is just like, how often is baby at breast? Are you skin to skin with baby even? Or your pumping frequency, but even like pump output is often less than what baby's actually taking in because babies are just incredible milk suckers. Like so efficient. Yeah. <laughs> like I remember early on, I was, uh, I had to be away for an hour. I was probably doing an interview or something actually. And I was like, Oh, I'll, I'll actually hate pumping, but I was like, I will pump. So there is milk available. And I was pumping away, pumping away, pumping away. And like barely anything was coming out. And I was like, Oh God, my husband brings baby into the room to change her diaper. And like within minutes I had pumped five ounces Wow. What in the world? You know, she wasn't even, she wasn't even like crying. She was just sort of like fussing a little bit. And I see her cute little face and it's like, bam, milk. Like it's so hormonally regulated. So somebody might have interpreted that as, oh my God, I have no milk. But for me, it was like, I just need to be closer to baby. Or if you're away from baby, they often have you like look at pictures or videos of your baby. So your pump output is better. Right. So I want to just like point out that there's so much more than food from a food perspective, you do need a certain amount of inputs to continue a certain amount of outputs. And that is both like calories and nutrients in general, and also fluids and that's often one of the trickiest things postpartum is just eating enough and drinking enough because you're, you're just spread so thin 
particularly if you are back to work before you feel ready or managing a household without much help and you're just like on your own, it can be hard to fuel enough. So eat enough, drink enough. Personally, I would really be pushing your high protein, high fat foods so you're satiated. But I also want to mention that some people notice a drop in milk output when they're not eating enough carbohydrates either. Mm. And it could just be a full, like, I'm not eating enough food in general, and carbohydrates are part of that. It could be people are trying to drop the quote baby weight and they're doing so via low carb diet, which also happens to be low in calories because they're trying to lose weight. It could be an electrolyte thing because you actually lose more electrolytes when you eat lower carb. Um, There could be many factors. It could just be that some people need more carbs to maintain a certain milk output. And some people do notice a distinct difference there. But I think ultimately it comes down to eating enough (laughs) and paying attention to if some of these factors are related to your milk supply as a whole. I think there's still a lot of mystery in the lactation world as to like what affects what and why some people notice XYZ, whereas some other people notice ABC. So just being aware of what is affecting your supply. And as somebody, for me personally, I choose not to pump all that much. I just hate pumping. For me, that means observing like baby's weight gain patterns. Are they satiated after feeds? Are they continuing to have a steady supply, I guess, of wet and poopy diapers, a sign that they're getting enough input and output, or potentially even working with, I mean, I'm really a big fan of working with lactation consultants as a whole. If you have any concerns about supply, that would be the number one thing to do. But potentially you can do pre and post weight feeds to get an estimation of the milk transfer that's happening during your feeds. Because a lot of your milk supply is just how often are you emptying the breasts? How often are you emptying milk, whether it's baby directly or via the pump. So it could be something related to that as well. Totally. Totally. You have lots of recipes in your blog and there's a lot of liver pate. And I have not ventured into the organ meat world yet, but they're important, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Shall I talk about that? Yes. Tell me because I'm like, Okay, I'm like trying to wrap my head around a liver pate because I'm kind of just like a steak, different cuts of steak, red yeah. meat kind of girl. But after reading your blog, I'm like, after reading your blog, I'm basically like, I got to get oh, on the organ train. Yeah, I need basically. liver. <laughs> yeah, I need yeah, liver. <laughs> so, and just to put this out there, I think a lot of people, so I, I write about the importance of organ meats, particularly tend to highlight liver because they are more nutrient dense. So for example, with liver, if you compare it like ounce to ounce to steak, you get 200 times the concentration of vitamin B12. You get significantly more vitamin A, significantly more iron, zinc, riboflavin, folate, choline. It's like liver on an ounce basis, on a weight basis is the number one richest source of choline on the diet. Although Most of our choline tends to come from eggs because you can eat a lot more eggs than you can liver, right? But liver is really rich in a lot of micronutrients. So I encourage that people incorporate it, but I also acknowledge that you're not going to be eating a lot of it at once. Like liver is a 
I call it like a self-regulating food. Like you're Ooh. not going to OD on liver because it's because of the flavor, like something about it. You're just, you're not going to overeat it. It doesn't have to be a concern, but I highlight it so often because I need to like overly talk about it to get people brave enough or excited enough to try it. <laughs> so I talk about liver a lot. The way that I find most people can incorporate it with the least amount of like ick factor is by incorporating ground liver or in the form of liver pate mixed into a ground meat recipe, which I call mm. hidden liver. If you search hashtag hidden liver all over Instagram, you'll see a lot oh. of my posts come up. So that tends to like offset the flavor. The flavor can be strong. Some people really don't like it. Some people don't mind it. Some people actually crave it. But I find that if it's mixed into a meat recipe, it just sort of dilutes the flavor a little bit. Mm -hmm. Over time, I've actually found that, you know, if I make like a meatloaf that has hidden liver, the recipe for that is in um, Real Food for Pregnancy, by the way. If I have meatloaf that incorporates liver, I think it has a it has a richer flavor. It just tastes more meaty. Whereas when you have it without it, it's like this meatloaf tastes kind of anemic or something. Like you know, I've maybe become <laughs> accustomed to it tasting a little more iron rich. But yeah, a lot of traditional cultures were big on the organ meats. So you see, especially in Chinese culture, there's liver, there's kidney, there's heart. And of course, all like the the odd bits, like the pig trotter soup and whatever, they incorporate quite a bit of that into postpartum recovery food. And it, it really makes a lot of sense because you are finding your really rich sources of B12 and vitamin A and iron and zinc and a lot of these nutrients that you need to recover. It's just about getting, getting brave and actually trying it. And I think most people, it's more of a mind over matter thing than it is that it's actually gross. I'm a former vegetarian. I totally get it. I was very scared to incorporate organ meats in, and it was just a matter of trying it. So start with chicken liver that has the tamest flavor. Make it into pate. You can follow the pate recipe in Real Food for Pregnancy. It's also on my blog. It's beef liver pate, but you can use chicken liver in it. And then mix that into, well, try it first. It's actually like kind of good. And then if you don't like the taste, then you can just freeze it into small containers. You could do ice cube trays. You could do like four ounce mason jars and then mix it into ground meat at a ratio of like three ounces or so per pound of ground meat. And that dilutes it enough that you probably won't even notice it. When you first started giving your kids solid food, yeah. did you give them liver like liver. Yeah. 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 We did liver pate. My son actually loves liver. Trained the palate at an early age. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and with kids, like it gets tricky because as they reach like later toddlerhood, they will start rejecting healthy foods. Like they will start getting pickier and just want to eat carbs for a while. We're on like the end of that train where now he's three and a half and he's like back into liking all the things that he liked before. Oh. But you kind of have to like, just ride it out for people who have two-year-olds and they're like, oh my God. Like, yeah. yeah. You know, the people who have done the whole real food thing and you get to like, I don't know, 18 months, you're like, I'm avoiding picky eating and my kid will eat salmon and broccoli and kale and whatever. And then you hit a point where they're like not eating those things and you're like, 
oh, the sky is falling. Like it all comes back full circle. I mean, my kid just made up a song yesterday about oysters and um, <laughs> he was asking for oysters. I mean, he must be going through a growth spurt. He's eating like all the eggs and all the oysters and he, yeah, he made up a song about it and then, you know, ate half a can of, wow. of oysters on the spot. I mean, amazing. What can I say? I but know. For a while he didn't want to eat those. So I don't know. But yeah, when it comes to introducing solids, it is very wise to introduce some iron rich foods because their baby's iron stores can start to drop around four to six months or so. And a lot of that is, well, breast milk isn't super dense in iron. And that is one of the nutrients that is actually not reflective of a mother's intake. It's pretty steady regardless of whether you eat a lot of iron or not. And also can depend on, you know, the circumstances of like, were you anemic in pregnancy? So did they accrue a lot of iron in pregnancy? Was their cord clamped too early? Like really they should get their full supply of their blood and then they probably won't be anemic at all in infancy. Or were they born premature, more likely to be iron deficient um, in later infancy, right? So the idea of incorporating some iron-rich foods is is a good one. And, you know, conventionally there's this push of iron-fortified infant cereals, which is interesting because the type of iron that's in it is really poorly absorbed anyways. Interesting. Um, but it's sort of questionable on whether we should be introducing cereals super early on anyways. So we just did iron-rich food. And liver pate, given that it's already, you know, ground up in a puree, you could just give it on a little spoon. Or incorporating canned oysters, which have a really soft texture. Those could be, you know, a baby led weaning friendly option that they could pick up or you could mash it up for them. But it's a super soft texture. Baby could mash it against the roof of their mouth with their tongue. Or actual, you know, pureed meats and or, you know, if you do the baby led weaning thing, some people will give their kid a chunk of steak or something to gnaw yeah. on. They don't actually like eat it, but they just gum on it and get all the juices. They are getting iron from that. Yeah, um, as well. I love that. And it's, it's a little bit of shifting your perspective because most people think of baby food as like a mashed up banana or mashed up fruit, right. which is like such a high sugar content. Yeah. I need to write a post actually. Everyone's asking for like, what were your first foods or what was the first food? I need to write a post on it eventually. I'm, I'm considering waiting until I go through this yeah. This baby's first food. So it yeah. might wait a little while, but I actually took the stance of, well, A, I wanted to feed, you know, real food. B, it had to be convenient. And C, I wanted to introduce a lot of flavors. And not like the obvious, like, baby will like this flavor. Like, babies, of course, are going to like sweet. We all love sweet, but kids exactly. especially... And then, you know, what's most nutritious for them. And so I did incorporate a lot of regular adult flavors into whatever baby was eating, because baby was pretty much eating what we ate, whether we did some baby-led weaning friendly like finger foods or whether I did some stuff in purees. And I, I kind of did a little of both. I wasn't dogmatic about like, I have to do this hundred percent or I have to do that hundred percent. I was like, right. I want to introduce a lot of complex flavors with the hope that baby will like these foods. And it, it turned out to be that way, you know, minus the toddler stuff, which is yeah. just developmentally normal. Yeah. So. I'd love to just touch on one last thing, which is a lot of women, 
and a lot of women don't know it, but I think it's like one in eight women experience postpartum thyroiditis. And I've had friends who, you know, their kids in the toddler age and they're like, oh yeah, well now I have Hashimoto's. I didn't even know that like just the, the load on the body and the thyroid through pregnancy is like a thing after. Can you speak to that? And maybe just some things that, and it's obviously multifactorial, but maybe some things that could help prevent it potentially. Yes. So yeah, postpartum thyroiditis is just extremely common and it's especially common for anyone who tested thyroid antibody positive during or before pregnancy, by the way. So I want to point that out that it might be there is maybe an underlying like subclinical thyroid thing going on or the like start of some sort of thyroid autoimmune condition and then gets aggravated by the crazy demand on the thyroid of pregnancy and then all the stresses of motherhood. The thyroid gland is like so sensitive to our stress. Like so much of it is really about how we're managing the circumstances we're we're in with life, right? <laughs> totally. Postpartum yeah. throws many curveballs at you. It is multifactorial in that there are nutritional components. I mean, being nutritionally depleted or remaining nutritionally depleted is not going to help the thyroid. It is dependent on, you know, iodine, selenium, iron, zinc, vitamins A and D, among others. But I want to point out, especially with iodine, that is one where needs for that vitamin or needs for that mineral are higher in postpartum than they are during pregnancy. Actually, several of these nutrients I just mentioned are higher in postpartum, but the breast actually has a really high affinity for iodine, even more than the thyroid gland. So you do want to make sure that if you're taking your prenatal vitamin still, make sure that it contains enough iodine. The needs for breastfeeding are actually, they're about 290 micrograms or around 300 micrograms just to round up. And a lot of prenatals either don't have iodine or don't have enough. So that's something to think about. There might be a reason that there was this emphasis on seaweed and seafood in a lot of other cultures for postpartum recovery. I think that's worth mentioning because iron is something important for your thyroid hormone production and conversion. If you are anemic, if you were anemic during pregnancy, if you lost a lot of blood at delivery, if you had a C-section, even if you had a, a larger baby, which they tend to like steal more iron from you. Like um, the life force. Yeah. That's like, it's like in the studies, like bigger mothers of bigger babies are more likely to be anemic. Yeah. You might want to be thinking about where's your iron coming from. Of course, your dietary sources, all the ones we talked about would probably cover your bases. Your heme iron from animal foods are going to be the, the most bioavailable and useful, easily assimilated by your body. But you also might want to look into supplementing with those. And I think it's worthwhile to know that sometimes the thyroid goes through, you know, a sort of readjustment period postpartum where they call it a triphasic pattern in the research where you can go temporarily hyperthyroid and then dip down into hypothyroid later on postpartum. And one of the symptoms, there are many possible symptoms of thyroid issues, but one of the symptoms is that you have a significant amount of hair loss that is also not regrowing. 
So it's, it's normal to lose hair postpartum based on the hair growth cycle and the hormonal effect of pregnancy. And then suddenly being thrust into this postpartum phase, you lose a lot of hair and that's normal because you were keeping a lot more hair on your head for longer during pregnancy. So don't freak out. We all lose hair and it's, <laughs> it sucks. But if it's not regrowing, in the months after, like you should start to have baby hairs coming in. You know, if that's not happening and you're not getting that annoying, like front <laughs> right along your hairline fuzz, <laughs> that might be a sign that you want to get your thyroid tested. If there's any mental health concerns like anxiety, irritability, depression, you also want to look into thyroid screening. If you're feeling like really cold, fatigued, having difficulty concentrating, can't sleep, even though you're super exhausted ongoing constipation, dry skin, a lot of those things can be symptoms of a thyroid condition. So it, it is really worthwhile to get screened if you can. I know it's really hard to get to the doctor or get anywhere when you have a newborn, but if any of these symptoms are presenting, it's worthwhile to at least check it out. Yeah. And that's a great just nuance of like, you're losing the hair, but it's not growing back. Yeah. Yep. Is there anything else you'd like to leave the listeners with? I think from a holistic standpoint. So a lot of us, and especially when people are asking me about approaching postpartum, it's like, I think people want to know, like, how can I recover strong so I can continue doing all the things that I was doing before? Like, how can I maintain my life and get my quote body back. And I don't know, this idea of sort of like bouncing back and doing all the things and getting to the gym quickly. Like, I think we just need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable for postpartum because your life does slow down. And I think the difference in, I guess, ease I've sort of felt with this postpartum is that I just expected everything to slow down. And I was like, I'm going to be okay with everything slowing down. I'm going to expect that my physical recovery is going to take at least a good month. Even if I like feel good, like I'm sure you at one month were like, I feel great. I'm fine. And then like, boom, mastitis. Like totally. It'll, postpartum will knock you on your ass if you're trying too hard to do all the things. It just, it just does. And we need to allow ourselves the space to recover so that when these curveballs get thrown our way, it's not that mastitis was like your fault for going, doing too many things too quickly, but imagine how much easier it would have been to get through if it had been slower pace with still help around and all the things, right? It's like harder to scramble to sort of fill in these holes than it is to just expect everything to kind of be a bit unpredictable for a while. I don't know. Yeah. And I think it's hard, even just like on a mental level to slow down and just, oh, like yeah. you're saying to allow it, like there would be, I'd be like, oh my God, I just stared at the ceiling wall and breastfed my baby for a week yes. straight. I know. <laughs> you know, and I think just that mental shift and challenge yeah. is the harder and, piece. And it's especially hard. I mean, we're both really like gung-ho entrepreneurs. It's especially yeah. hard when in your brain you have like big business plans, big visions, big things you want to carry out. I'm somebody who gets joy from exercising this like other work mental part of my brain, you know? And so to figure out a way that you can 
do that while still honoring that, like, I need to slow down and recover, you kind of just have to, like, compromise in certain areas for a while, I guess, right? Motherhood's all about surrendering. I feel like pregnancy, birth, motherhood, it's about surrendering to not all the things are within my control. I can control the controllables and then expect some days to be like a total disaster and some days to be like, Oh, I feel greatly accomplished. I, you know, baby was pretty happy, not crying a lot. I got a load of laundry in. I got a little bit of work done. Like this was a good day. And then the next day is like just a total mess. And to sort of expect that and not let that get you really upset (laughs) or not expect that like, oh, I can keep it together every single day. It just, I don't know, it just gives you permission to be a lot more human. Yeah, I think everything from pregnancy, giving birth, raising a toddler, it is like the ultimate like letting go oh, yeah. <laughs> of control. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Lily, thank you so much. This has been super informative. I'm going to totally go to the, the butcher right now and go get some organ meats. <laughs> Are you really? <laughs> I, I might. My husband's going to be like, oh, what is this you're bringing home? But chicken you, liver. Chicken liver. You. Got it. It is much easier on the palate. But also, we didn't talk about the other organ meats. If you want an organ meat yeah. that's actually like super delicious, you don't have to try to cover up the flavor. Heart. Oh. Heart. Okay. It's, Heart. It's, it's like okay. as good as tri tip. I'm not kidding you. You will be so surprised. There's a recipe on my site for Thai chili beef heart skewers. You can read. The hilarious rundown of how I put <laughs> off preparing this forever because I was too afraid to deal with this heart that had been in my freezer for too long. <laughs> and then we made it and it was incredible. Absolutely incredible. So delicious. Oh my God. I'm totally going to check out that recipe. So delicious. Um, yeah. Just have the butcher prepare it for you so you don't have to do all the, the oh. cutting up of it or whatever. Yeah. You have many, many, many amazing blog posts. Where can people find you? You can find me at lilynicholsrdn.com. So that's where my blog is. It links out to both of my books, Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. Before maternity leave, I put out this really big post called Real Food Postpartum Recovery Meals, links out to more than 50 recipes, has tips for freezing stuff. That's definitely related to everything we talked about today. So check that out. That's an amazing Um, blog post. I Loved that one. It, it was epic. I was like, I'm going to go out with a bang. This yes. is the last blog post I'm writing before <laughs> maternity leave and maybe for a long time. And then in terms of social media, I'm most active on Instagram. So my handle is the same as my website. So it's at Lily Nichols RDN. Amazing. Lily, thank you. Thank you. That's a wrap. I have two truths that I fully believe in. First, to be 1% better every single day. And second, All feedback is good feedback because it helps us grow. Why do I say this? If you're enjoying these conversations and you find this is adding value, send us some love by subscribing to Muscle Medicine Podcast on iTunes. And if you want to share your voice with the world and scream it from the rooftops and tell your friends, or you can just give us a little feedback so we can grow by rating and reviewing Muscle Medicine on iTunes. Thank you guys. So much gratitude. Dr. Emily Kybert here.